This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Gretchen Bakke discusses her new book, The Grid, about the electricity grid and its future. Then PW bookselling editor Judith Rosen explores specialty bookstores for children. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly Bestseller List, powered by Nielsen BookScan. Fiction? Slim? Start with that, and then Um, we'll jump to the nonfiction? There's a few things. We've got a new number one, which is Daniel Silva's The Black Widow. Mm -hmm. We gave it a starred review, uh, said it was riveting. It's the 16th novel, featuring the legendary Israeli art restorer and spy Gabriel Alone, and it finds him on the trail of a secret ISIS terrorist after a vicious attack in Paris, which is obviously obviously extremely timely. There's a sort of process of turning a civilian into a spy and the meticulous maneuvering of Gabriel's team. We say they're fascinating, suspenseful, and bated breath exciting. And the satisfying open ending promises more to come in the saga. Uh, we, our review says that Silva proves once again that he can rework familiar genre material and bring it to new life. So uh, he's done a big tour for that right now, and uh, clearly it's going very well. Sold over 50,000 mm. units in its first week out, so at the top of the hardcover fiction list. Down at number seven, we have Aftermath, uh, Life Debt, which is the new Star Wars novel by Chuck Wendig. These have been doing super well, if you remember the first one. Yep. Also hit our bestseller list. Um, these are tie-in novels that take place between the events of Return of the Jedi and The Force Awakens. So they're part of the movie continuity, not part of what's called the expanded universe. Mm. Um, but uh, Wendig has been doing some great stuff with kind of updating Star Wars for the 21st century. Wow. And uh, these books are super exciting. Moving down to number 15 is Daughters of the Bride by Susan Mallory. Uh, this is a big book for her. She's a very big name in women's fiction and romance. Um, this is a big hardcover. And it's a brand new series, a new setting, a small seaside community called Los Lobos, California. And uh, in this case, it's about a bride's three daughters, um, each of whom has her own uh, romantic story, of, of you know, various kinds. So the mother, uh, so instead of the mother of the bride, the mother is the bride. Mm-hmm. She's getting married again, almost 24 years after being widowed. And uh, she has a daughter who's in love with her ex-husband, a daughter uh, who is uh, working at a nonprofit that helps women escape domestic violence. And so it was not so trusting of men and uh, a daughter who's embarking on a romance with a sexy music producer who happens to be the grandson of her boss. Mm. So uh, lots going on, lots of romantic drama, lots of family drama, lots of fun. Uh, Mallory's books are always very warm-hearted and entertaining. And uh, our review says that Mallory thoroughly involves readers in the lives of her characters as they face realistic, believable problems and search for their own happy endings. Uh, So you get pretty much four romances for the price of one. (laughs) (laughs) That big hardcover, and uh, it's doing very nicely. And uh, just a little below that, number 17, is The Singles Game Mm -hmm. by Lauren Weisberger. Uh, We don't have a review of this one yet. She's the author of The Devil Wears Prada, Revenge Wears Prada. And uh, this one focuses on the world of tennis. So she's moving away from fashion, but still with many of the same themes about um, a a woman who is very driven to become the best and uh, the price that she may have to pay for being at the top of her game. And uh, finally, down at number 19 is Among the Wicked by Linda Castillo by uh, coming out from Minotaur. This is the exciting eighth Kate Burkholder mystery. And uh, our review says that Kate is soon immersed in both the world of the Amish and 
uh, a ferocious battle for her life. So readers will be enthralled as Kate, uh, who is the police chief in Painters Mill, Ohio, and is ex-Amish herself, uncovers secrets in a quaint Amish community. And so they announced a first printing of 150,000 copies. Wow. So far, it's uh, sold a little under 4,000 of those, a very respectable first week showing. And uh, that's what we've got on the main hardcover fiction list. So nonfiction, looking at it thematically, we have some books on war, and this is uh, number nine, The Field of Flight by Lieutenant General Michael T. Flynn and with Michael Ledeen. Uh, the subtitles, How We Can Win the Global War Against Radical Islam and Its Allies. Lieutenant General Michael Flynn is a 20-year veteran of American Enterprise Institute. Uh, number 12, we have The Last Punisher by Kevin Latz, who not only was part of the SEAL team. Team 3 with Chris Kyle, but he played himself in the movie American Sniper. And he's here with two co-writers, and he gives his account of the uh, Battle of Ramadi in uh, 2006. So uh, we've got that. And then, as far as memoirs, we have uh, J.C. Dugard, Freedom. That's our highest one on our nonfiction list at number three, which is sold about 11,000 copies. This is her account of her life uh, post-captivity. She takes off from A Stolen Life, which was published in 2011. And then we have Jesse Klein at number 11. You'll grow out of it. She's the head writer on In Inside Amy Schumer, and she's been getting a lot of press, and that's at number 11. And uh, that's basically what we have for nonfiction, but I think we should maybe mention one children's book, and this is Chris Colfer, who's the, uh, this is the fifth in the Land of Mind stories, uh, middle grade series called An Author's Odyssey, and this follows up beyond the kingdom, uh, which was last year, and um, he had a little bit of a slump with the first week of sales, but it's kicking right back in this week. So I just wanted to uh, mention that. And that's all I got. Interested looking at the nonfiction list. I'm seeing a lot of books kind of popping up that uh, haven't been on the list for a while, have been out for a while. Yeah. Randall Monroe's Thing Explainer, which came out in November, is up there at number 15. Uh, Neil Gaiman's new essay collection, The View from the Cheap Seats, is at number 21. That's been mm-hmm. out for five weeks. Right. So uh, it's interesting to mm-hmm. watch those pop up and wonder kind of what's giving them the boost. Usually, you know, if it were the end of the year, it's a Christmas shopping season. Season, but it's not happening in July. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah it's just uh, perhaps an unexplainable thing. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I was, I saw that about the thing explainer. I remember you and I discussing it uh, mm-hmm. when it first came on the list. And uh, so there it is again. And that's maybe something that might be explained in the thing explainer. So anything is possible. <laughs> I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. And this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Gretchen Bakke tells us about reinventing the electricity grid. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Arthur Lubell. I am the author of Dean Arvis, Portrait of a Photographer, and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Gretchen Bakke on the line. Her new book is The Grid. Hello, Gretchen. So glad you could join us. Thank you for having me. So let's first, if you can, just describe the current grid of electricity that we are all using and living on. It's the biggest machine in the world. It's incredibly complex. Uh, In the United States, there's three of them, actually. So there's one for the entire western half of the country and one for the eastern half of the country and one for Texas. Um, And that allows them to secede if they choose to do so. And it also means that the federal laws which regulate electricity transmission across borders don't necessarily apply to them. Well, okay. So wait, I've never heard of this. Tell tell us more about this. This is fascinating. Um, So it makes Texas one of the most interesting places right now in terms of um, the way the grid is changing because they get to regulate themselves and make a lot of decisions based on their own ideas and values about how power should be made and used and transmitted and paid for um, because everything that they don't, that doesn't cross the state border them is they get to just decide for themselves and in most places everything crosses state borders mm-hmm. for the um, for the western half of the country which also includes the west most of the western half of canada um electricity is moving around on one giant system so there's the there's a there's a set of federal reg- regulations that help um 
govern that system and also limit the kinds of um, creativity, I would say, that can enter into it. Um, and the same is true in the East. Um, they don't limit drastically, um, but it just it means that Texas, um, the way that the grid is changing, is changing differently in Texas than it is in the rest of the country. So uh, let's take a look at one of these grids then let's let's say the the eastern grid where is the machine where does uh, uh where does this start and how, how does it work okay so the machine is everywhere um the machine is the battery in your cell phone um the machine is the outlet and the plug you put into it the machine is the lines that go out to the poles on the streets and the um, or under the ground depending on where you live um and that to sort of grow, go along the prairies or go through the mountains to where the electricity is generated. All of the power plants are interlocked within each half, sort of within each of these giant grids. Um, and again, on the eastern half of the country, you have um, electricity, hydroelectricity coming down from Quebec. Um, so Canada, Quebec has its own grid, also similar to Texas. Uh, hmm. It sort of allows it a kind of privacy of infrastructure. Um, but for example, Toronto um, is all, they're all, all of the power within the upper half of North America is moving around um, from power plant to transmission line to um, di- sort of um, distribution lines that have these transformers that, that bring the voltage down to a level that won't kill you if you touch it. Um, into your outlet, into into your batteries of your computers, and you carry it around in your pocket. That's the grid. And the whole thing cycles back around. It's a giant circle. So electricity doesn't come from a place and end someplace else. It only actually works because it's moving through the system and going back to the point of origin. Um, and the thing that's amazing about the grid is that this is happening. Electricity, we use it the instant it's produced. So uh, when you turn on a light, you're using the electricity that was made just exactly right then, <laughs> regardless of, the ha- of how gigantic this thing is. Um, it's the, the physics of electricity makes it an instantaneous system. And this is a big, this is one of the big problems of the grid. And it always has been since the 1880s when we started producing electricity for everybody. Um, well, could say in the 1920s when we started producing electricity or the 1930s for everybody, but in the 1880s when it became an idea that could sell electricity um, to light, and originally just to light light bulbs, and by the 1890s to run streetcars uh, and power printing presses, things like this, um, cool breweries. That was an early an early yeah. use of air conditioning that ran on electricity. Um, so the problem is, is that you can't you we can't really store it. Um, and so you have to always be producing as much of it as people are using. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and that's just extremely delicate. Um, that's an extremely delicate thing. Uh, and the business models of electricity for a long time kept premising themselves on other industries like the natural gas industry. Um, today, a little bit, we think with coal as opposed to thinking with electricity because electricity is alone. It's the only thing that works this way. It's the only thing that is very difficult to put to the side, to sort of let it be, put it in a barrel, right? Use it when you need it. You use it when you make it. Right. No, no one's investing in electricity futures. Um, people, no, not in electricity futures. But the one of the interesting things that happened is in 1992, um, Congress actually legislated electricity to be treated like a commodity. Hmm. So legally... It's a, it, it works like a commodity, um, but actually it doesn't. So this is how we end up with, with blackouts in the summer that take out the entire East Coast um, or you know, at, at the very least brownouts and limitations. I, I remember one of those hitting New York several years back and uh, it was quite dramatic. And New York is always interesting because um, Con Ed, they like to call everybody and ask them to turn their their <laughs> air conditioning down. Mm-hmm. Um, with, you know, where you can really, there are these sort of symptomatic moments where you can sort of see the grid barely, right? Like it barely pops into consciousness. Like, what is this phone call? What is like, why are they calling me to turn down my air conditioning? As if it, as if it were my responsibility to keep the grid from collapsing, right? But in fact, it is in some ways everybody's responsibility to keep the grid from collapsing. But the way it was designed or the way that this problem was solved throughout the 20th century was that, um, we would have a very steady kind of power 
production so that we controlled or we, meaning the electricity companies, controlled how much electricity was made um, at any given second hmm. by having big power plants that burnt or combusted coal, for example, um, which you can really say like, okay, coal, This is you put a certain amount of coal in, you get a certain amount of electricity out and you can vary it by the season. Um, you can vary it more or less based on what you know, you, users, there's sort of a statistical pattern of usage. And the problem right now is that as we let go of coal, um, and some places replaced by natural gas, which works a similar way, um, renewables are coming in and they don't work that way. Right. Um, and so suddenly you have all of this variability on the production side of the grid and on the consumption side, which is us. Um, there's still this idea that we're going to use as much as we want whenever we want to, because that's how it was set up. That's the 20th century. The 20th century was electricity is cheap and we will make as much of it as you need. Um, and what's the reason that it's worth thinking about the grid in the United States is that it's one of the few places where it was actually set up like that, where this idea that the consumer can have as much as they want of a thing and that they pay for it's the, the, the way that payment plans were, were designed was that um, they would then pay for that, right? So they people pay not everywhere in the U.S. anymore, but everywhere in the U.S. up to probably the 1980s, people paid per kilowatt hour that they consumed, and so this meant that it, it was always to the benefit of the electric companies, um, many of which are for profit, not all of them, to get people to consume more. Take us a little bit. You, you'd mentioned when electricity was, was first introduced in the 1880s uh, you know, to cool breweries, but to put lights on the streets. Tell us, give us a little uh, history about the grid, um, when it started, um, and then when you said it was started to be, you know, when, when it was brought to everyone in the 1920s. Give us a little history of that. If you think of a grid as a power source connected to a use, um, the very first grids were in the, actually on the West Coast in San Francisco, um, little tiny lights, like some sort of battery, some sort of light. That was it. Then we got, um, what are called, um, arc lights, which are these insanely bright lights that were quite popular. Um, they were actually popular in England through the 1920s. Um, they were quite popular in the U.S. up to the almost, um, I would say, 1900, something like that. Um, but the for us, a sort of dimmer. Let me go back again. So this, there were these this very tiny grids that people were experimenting with because the the issue with electricity is that everybody, many people, understood how to make it. There were lots of they were called dynamos then. We now call them generators. Um, lots of people had generators. Lots of people had patented generators or dynamos and they were making electricity, but nobody quite knew what to do with it. And the, the idea was that maybe we needed light. Maybe we needed better light because we had candles, we had, uh, sperm oil, um, candles and lamps, um, gas lamps, but all of these had real downsides. Um, so this was the market was like, let's get light. So everybody was experimenting with how you would take a dynamo, you would wire it in some way to a thing that produced light. And the first thing would, were arc lights, um, and they were developed um, by a guy named Charles Brush, uh, and uh, put originally grew in popularity in big cities, but often with the press. So like newspaper offices um, in San Francisco. And then quite shortly thereafter, um, Edison actually put his lighting system into the New York times. Um, but white collar workers just needed to see better. It was this moment at which, um, commerce, uh, in some way just needed longer working hours. Um, and the way the buildings were designed, there just wasn't enough light making it out to the clerks. You know, people, the people with the outside offices were higher up in the, in the, in the business structure, but the people then with the inside offices, they couldn't see wet very well. And the, the original skyscrapers, sort of anything over five stories would have a light well. Um, but you just, there just was a lot of work not getting done, especially in the wintertime. And then in the summer, there was work not getting done because it was too hot. So the first aim was light, like, and also light for city streets, because that was known to lower crime rates. Um, that was known from England already in the late 1700s, so that if you put in street lights, your crime, like, crime rates went down. Mm -hmm. So we had arc lights, um, and then Edison um, 
like everybody, was working on figuring out some way to make a lighting system that he could sell. Um, he produced a, a mass producible bulb. Uh, we often say that he invented the light bulb. He didn't, in fact, invent the light bulb, but he invented a light bulb that was mass producible. Um, and that was no uh, easy feat, as a matter of fact. And he invented dim light. So arc lights were insanely bright. They were, see, what was the equivalent? I might have the equivalent in the book, but it's something like a 1,600-watt bulb or a mm. 3,200-watt bulb. <laughs> I would have to actually look it up. Very bright and uncomfortably bright. And a generator only ran, the biggest generators only ran about 17 of them. So you had them, um, for example, on Broadway in New York. But they weren't very good for offices. Um, they were great for mines. So people who were working in mines, they would have, they would actually use arc lights um, to continue gold mining in California. Um, but for this this kind of need of the press or need of the white collar worker, what was actually necessary was a dimmer bulb. So Edison is the reason we remember him is because he invented the dim light, hmm. uh, which seems sort of an odd thing. And he figured out that you could put thousands of lights on a single network. Um, so instead of just having one or two or 15 lights, very, very bright lights on a network, he, he could put a thousand bulbs on a network, but his networks only went about a mile. So they only stretched for about a mile. Um, and then you had to build a new grid. So originally, I mean, you can think of it as like the first grid was just, uh, a, a source of electricity, a tiny, tiny dynamo, um, and a, and a wire and a bulb. And then it gets bigger and it becomes a bigger dynamo some wires and maybe five bulbs. And then it becomes suddenly this mile. This is what you get in lower Manhattan. You get a mile and you get, I think in the end, 8,000 bulbs, but all about 15 watts. And then in the late 1880s, you get alternating current, which allows you to change um, the voltage of electricity for transmission. And then, so you can step it up, it's called, so you can produce a fairly low voltage electricity at the dynamo. At this point, it becomes a generator. Um, it steps up for transmission. It is transmitted at a very high voltage, and then it steps down again for use. Um, and this gives you, suddenly the grid can grow, it can become enormous with alternating current. Um, and nevertheless, it doesn't kill you. Because that's the other problem with electricity, right? Like, it, it's not for us, it's for our machines. We can't touch it. It's, it's entirely lethal to us. So how do you create a system that the whole country is dependent upon that nobody ever actually interacts with physically? Um, and part of this is by having a very low voltage coming out of the wall. So if you, you know, if your four-year-old sticks um, a hairpin in there, they're going to get a burn, but they're not going to die. Um, and alternating current made this possible over a much greater space because you could transmit electricity at a very high voltage and then you could step it down to a much lower voltage for use. Um, and that basically wiped Edison's business out. He was outgunned in that. Um, and the next step in that process then was to begin to, cons because it was the era of um, the great monopolists, um, the next step in the process was to begin to consolidate um, all of these um, small electrical systems which had risen up in people's homes, in apartment buildings, um, in um, Chicago's loop had 42, I believe, uh, in the, by, the, by the early um, 1890s. Um, so how, do you, how did we get these big systems? It was this sort of monopolistic urge that characterized the early 1900s. Um, and it was difficult. Like it was a difficult project to make, to, to make monopolies out of electricity um, was, was really hard, again, because you can't store it. Um, so you had to figure out how to have people or companies using it all the time. Um, and the more people and the more companies and the more manufacturers and the more businesses, um, you got to be working with your system, the um, kind of the wider your range could actually become, the more power plants you could grow. Um, and Samuel Insel did this in Chicago, and his model was taken up by essentially everybody uh, until the late 1920s when most urban areas were being served. Um, and when the, um, the stock market collapsed, it, uh, many of these electricity companies were um, not exactly, some were just plain out falsifying their books, but many were just sort of hiding assets in ways that we are familiar with from Enron. 
um, where they would create holding companies and they would put their, their debt in the holding companies and then their books would look really great. Um, but they weren't really great. They were the sort of hollow shell entities. Um, and when the stock market um, collapsed, a lot of them just fell in on themselves. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Cortella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Gretchen Bakke, author of The Grid, who's giving us a history of electricity in the United States. It's totally fascinating. Um, so go on. After the, after the stock market crash, um, these little companies folded. Did that leave room for the monopolists to come in and gobble them up? No, it's the monopolist that folded. Uh-huh. So the monopolist had incorporated all of the little companies. I see. Yeah, and um, and at this point, by the by, nineteen twenty nine, um, nobody was thinking of electricity on a small scale anymore at all. So it was just like, will monopolies be public, or will monopolies be private? That was the question. Will there be public power? Or will there be private power? And what? So then the government, uh, Roosevelt got into the game and decided that everybody should have electricity, that, uh, that an essential part of equal opportunity in America and national uplift was in fact spreading electricity to everyone. Um, and he, um, used the federal government to help fund the just running wires out to farms, which there was no way that this could be profitable for a company. Right. Uh, so that's how we got, that's how we got universal. Um, electricity, but it's also how we got, um, we have places like the Tennessee Valley Authority, the TBA that has, is a monopoly, but it's public. Well, it's actually federal. We have, um, public monopolies. We have municipal monopolies. So Los Angeles, for example, is a monopoly over their own power district, but it's not for profit. It's municipal. And then we have for profit utilities, which are monopolies, um, like Con Ed. Bringing us back to the present day, one of the things that you keep talking about is electricity storage. Um, and, and clearly that's a concept that would really change if we were able to store electricity on a, on a large scale, you know, we're not talking double A batteries here. Um, then, you know, obviously that would really change how we interact with electricity in this large scale way. What's the state of the art there? Basic. <laughs> it's, a lot of people are working on it. Um, it's There's kind of two ways forward if we want to get out of a command and control mode of making power. So if we want to move away from fossil fuels, um, we either have to figure out a way to store electricity or we have to figure out a way to manage electricity that's a lot lighter on our sort of on our feet, I guess. I tend to think of like utilities aren't very good dancers. Um, they set a plan, they try to meet the plan. Um, but in a way, if you can, um, if you can take, for example, hydropower from the Pacific Northwest and make it dance with solar power from rooftop panels in California or from big solar, um, factories out in the desert, you can do a lot, um, without necessarily having big storage all over the place. So that's one option, um, but it involves changing the kind of the culture of electricity or the, the even the way we imagine or think about electricity. Um, it involves people being willing to give up some kind of control over when they do their dishes or when their hot water heater works, um, but to say to their dishwasher, like, use electricity when it's available to you. And the dishwasher then communicates with the grid. It becomes part of this big dance on both the production and the use side of the system. On the other side, there's a lot of, there's a lot of interesting stuff happening with storage. And probably what we'll see is some sort of combination of these two futures. Um, there's the main form of storage we have is called pumped hydro. It only works where there's hills, um, which leaves out a lot of the country. But that involves using excess electricity um, to pump water up a hill and put it in a reservoir. And then when there's a need for electricity, you just let gravity pull it back down again. Uh, there's a train that just was uh, approved in Utah that's going to do the same thing. So they built this big, heavy train 
Um, when there's excess electricity, they'll push the train up the hill. I tend to think of it as Sisyphus train. Um, and then when the electricity is needed, they let it run back down the hill again. Um, and it generates power in this process. They all sound a little like batteries. So batteries are a chemical way to do this, to take electricity, to do a thing with it. And when you reverse that thing, it remakes electricity. There's never electricity stored. Right. But you use the electricity to... Um, to produce chemically or physically a situation that when you reverse it produces roughly the same amount of electricity. And what's great about that is that something that people don't talk about very much with renewables, the variable ones like wind um, and solar, is that they often overproduce. Uh, so it's not a, if we make a transition to a renewable world, variability is a problem, but also overproduction is a big problem. So storage is a way to take an overproduction of solar power, for example, and put it aside for nighttime. You've been talking about solar, wind, hydro. How are all of these compatible or not with, with the grid or within the grid? Um, everything that runs a turbine is compatible with the current grid. So uh, hydro is very compatible. Nuclear is very compatible. Um, anything you burn, they're, they have a low efficiency. Um, we've kind of maxed out physically what we can do to make an efficient coal burner, um, just by the laws of physics, not because we're bad engineers. It's just a, there's a limit. Um, uh, natural gas, um, compressed air, which is a storage device, um, sort of like pumped hydro, where you push air into the ground and you let it out again. It also runs a turbine. Um, these big solar farms that you see that um, have all of the mirrors pointing at a tower. And it's like a giant circle of mirrors, like a flower with a big stamen in the middle. And they all point at the tower and it um, it produces, um, it melts salt, essentially. It keeps molten salt very, very hot. And then that heat is used to run a turbine. Mm. All of those things can be controlled. Um, batteries also, um, these big, like big grid scale batteries, which there's one in Anchorage and there's one being built in Southern California. Um, they can all be subject to this older value system that was built into the infrastructure, which is that we decide and we let it go when we decide to let it go. And um, that's a lot of stuff. Uh, and if we can figure out, um, storage or fusion, right? That's the other thing. Um, the grid can continue to work in its current shape uh, with its current governance, with its current business structure fairly well into the future. The things that don't work very well are is basically everything that doesn't have uh, this intermediate phase of boiling water, for example, to create steam that then spins a turbine. Um, when the turbine is spun directly, or which is the case with a wind turbine, um, the wind blows on it, it turns. Uh, you can adjust uh, what's called the pitch and yaw, um, so it can go up and down or move around. Um, but to slow down the speed, for example, you can try to vary it. But essentially, um, when the wind hits it, whatever the speed the wind is hitting it at is going to create the amount of electricity that's coming out of it. Um, and the same with solar panels. So if it's a it's if it's rooftop solar, um, the if there's a cloud, the amount of electricity that three seconds that's coming out of all the solar panels that are covered by that cloud drops down. Um, so those don't work very well with the current grid. There are renewables like geothermal, for example, that work very well because again, they're controllable. There's tidal power, which doesn't work very well. So you can see that there's this kind of, there's these two different, um, I tend to say logics actually of um, the way that one produces electricity that meld well with a value system sort of a 20th century value system. And now we have some 21st century um, ideas about how it would be better to make power. Some of them work okay with the grid and some of them don't. So what led you to write a book about the grid and to talk about not just where it came from, but where it might be going? Um, a very uh, curious set of circumstances, which is that the... Um, one of the things that I found, I when I was doing my research for my dissertation, I was living in Eastern Europe. Um, and so I came back, I'd been away from the US for three years. And when I came back um, and was visiting my parents uh, in Astoria, Oregon, um, I found that they had suffered a series of um, 
fairly catastrophic storms, um, which you're seeing all over the place. Mm -hmm. And those, they had been without power a lot. And it used to be when I was a kid, we lost power often in Astoria. We didn't have a very robust grid. And it was just one of those things. You know, it's just like the power goes out. If it's out for two or three days, people would go to the Red Lion, which was the hotel. And they always had power. I don't know why. They might have had a generator. But somehow, like, the, everyone in town would, like, go get a room at the Red Lion where it's a, it's a very rainy place. So in the off season, which is when the storms happen, there's nobody in the hotels. So you could just go stay there. Um, but that hotel isn't really there anymore. And the outages have gotten much longer. Um, and they happen a lot more often. Um, and I started to see non-radical people getting off the grid. So people that my parents knew, for example, that I interviewed, and you see a lot of them in the book. Um, and I thought this is an interesting thing. Like there is somehow uh, this idea that one has faith in an electrical system. One has faith in a system that one doesn't know anything about. One just has faith that there's somebody out there who's going to take care of it, who's going to make it work. That faith went away. Hmm. And so people were just starting to do things. Um, and I think we see a lot of that spirit now in the, um, the way in which communities are um, aggregating or municipalizing their local grids, the way in which people are organizing um, to put sort of getting themselves together and then bidding, like making solar panel companies bid for all the rooftop in a particular area. Um, there's a kind of like very subtle radicalization um, that's happened to people who aren't otherwise particularly alternative. And that's what made me interested. At that particular point, I said, okay, there's something going on here. The point at which um, people aren't demonstrating in the streets, they're not angry, there's no violence associated with it, there's no preaching, like nobody's even really talking about it. But little by little, one by one, people are taking individual action to produce these energy secure lives. And then they begin to talk to each other a little bit about what they've done. Oh, I had a good idea. Oh, hey, I did this. How about this? How did you work with that? Oh, I don't really like the electric company. Uh, I never understand my electric bills. That's like the biggest complaint. Like I have no idea what my electric bill means. I turn off all my lights. I try to conserve. My electric bill goes up. And so this, this, that, that's what, that's what sort of pulled me into the project. Um, and that was happening in 2008, 2009. So the, there was the collapse of Lehman Brothers and sort of the whole world economy. Um, and I think that that sort of, that kind of sped up or put a little jet engine behind um, the push for not quite trusting big systems in the way that people had before um, to build something up a little bit from the ground. Uh, the U.S. military is one of the first places that started building little grids of their own. Um, because they just, they can't, if the power goes out, that's no good for them, right? Prisons, the same thing, like everything's electric. The power goes out. You can't just have the power, you just can't have power outages in a prison. All the locks are electric. Right. right? How do they deal with it? They start to build little systems. Um, people are talking to each other, organizing, uh, and it's just grown since then. Like it's, I, I started the project because I was interested in, in, in that particular, um, kind of intimacy or awareness or, conscientiousness about how one makes power where um, for oneself in order to have a reasonably secure energy secure life um, and then it just ballooned and I found a lot of people moving you know people who are moving away you know somebody's parents who were somewhere and the power was too unstable and they didn't want a generator and so they moved you know they moved them to a different area it's like it's sh it's shifting us around all of the time this system without us really be, being that aware of it. Um, and then, you know, the renewables explosion has happened since then. Uh, so the book kind of, the research of the book just um, unfolded on its own. It sort of became this magically grandiose project as opposed to kind of a small, a small project about small people doing small things. Well, it sounds intense and amazing and well worth reading for anyone who's uh, planning on sticking around to see how things change. Yeah, I mean, all of us will. We do, every single thing in our life is dependent on this thing. Everything. So our transit, our phones, our communication, our lights, our computers, our money, our pumps, the pumps that pump our water, everything. Um, and we just, we don't see it. We don't think about it. And then it, it, it rubs at us when it goes awry. And it's not just Sandy, you know, it's not just Superstorm Sandy that makes that happen. It happens on a, that makes it happen on a big scale. Um, but it's, it's kind of going wrong little bit by little bit everywhere. Um, and 
and people are taking action and they're not just, it's not just little people in little towns these days. It's also people, um, who see a real business opportunity. Um, Silicon Valley is full of companies who are trying to figure out ways to make the grid work better. You know, intermultinationals are doing it too, are putting in all kinds of different generation means. There's lots of conversation, then global warming conversation sort of pushed into it. And it's like, okay, how can we get rid of all the fossil fuels? Well, that's another huge problem, right? Um, but the grid is sort of prepped for it. It's ready. It's ready for this problem. Um, and we're already a decade into to, to trying to figure out how to make the, the infrastructure more robust and more flexible. Um, so we can, there's a lot of vested interests, but it certainly can, it certainly can be done. That's my, I'm sort of the optimist. There are lots of people who'd be like, oh, it's terrible. <laughs> it's going to, terrorists are going to take it down if we smarten it. Yeah, they might, you know, they might. So we have to figure out how to make that not happen too. But you feel it can be done. Yeah, I, f I think it can be, um, but there needs to be a, a real, there needs to be a real concerted effort to not shut down um, or exclude all of the various things are happening because it's a fantastically creative time, but the grid is, it's huge right now. It's huge. And it's run on a set of norms um, that mean you can't just um, sort of intervene in it willy nilly. Like if you're going to invent a smart dishwasher, for example, to go back to the earlier idea, it has to be able to communicate with the grid. And the way the grid communicates, um, it follows a certain set of norms that have been set, most of which have been set at the federal level. Um, and so in order to, in order to include as much of this new stuff as possible, there has to be first a legislative awareness, um, that ideas and uh, attempts shouldn't be closed down. Um, and there also needs to be a, a, an infrastructural awareness that things need to be able to work together. Um, and that piece of it, that like making the norms, um, is extremely boring, hard work. <laughs> and the legislative part of it, it becomes very political. And of course, nobody really understands how electricity works. I barely understand it. I've spent the last seven years looking at it, you know, like a regular person. It's really, really hard to understand electricity. It's unlike anything else we have to deal with, um, which means that le legislative efforts often completely get it wrong. Um, so that's, you know, or cut or let's sort of take a political action that makes a lot of sense and then cut the hand off of the arm that was making everything work. Um, so we saw this in California where they decided to not count rooftop solar um, toward their, your, their renewable energy goal because nobody can figure out how to make money off rooftop solar. So it's like if we're going to have a renewable energy goal, it's going to be utility produced large scale renewable energy. But California has 25% of the rooftop solar in the country. So that's just sort of a legislative misstep to not take it into account. Um, because as soon as you do, suddenly you have this massive distributed, like you have all these people producing electricity all over the place. And every time you pass a house with a solar panel that's only taking up like one quarter or one eighth of the roof, you know there's a problem. Because if we want to make electricity renewably, every single roof that has a solar panel should actually be covered completely. So you can see the error, like that there's a sort of a financing business error in the way that the system is put together at present. That means that homeowners are choosing to only produce as much electricity as they themselves need in order to zero out their electricity bill with their utility at the end of a year, for example, when they could just be covering with some sort of mode, they could just be covering the whole rooftop and producing electricity for all of us. These tiny little things. Um, so do I think it's possible to not use any fossil fuels to make electricity, including making, using no fossil fuels to make giant wind turbines and solar panels? I think that's a giant problem, especially if you also get rid of nuclear power, um, which a lot of places are also trying to do. It's sort of a simultaneous push, not everybody. Um, but yeah, why not? I mean, there's so much creativity right now. There's so many good ideas. Um, some of them will make it to market and some of them will actually interact with other ones. Um, and hopefully some of that will um, change the grid we have. There's no reason for us to have a 20th century grid in the 21st century. It should work really differently by 2100. I don't even know how to say that number. <laughs> the year 2100. <laughs> um, and if not, like New York's going to be underwater. 
So there's, I mean, there's a real, there are real stakes. We've been talking with Gretchen Bakke, and you can find her book, The Grid, in stores right now. Gretchen, thank you so much for joining us. I feel like my brain is really full right now. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Bookselling Editor Judith Rosen talks about bookstores just for kids. Stay tuned. Yo, yo, what's up? I'm Daryl McDaniels, the author of 10 Ways Not to Commit Suicide, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Rah. I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week, we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today's senior bookselling editor, Judith Rosen, is going to tell us all about children's specialty bookstores. Hello, Judith. Thank you for coming on. Hi, Mark. It's always nice to talk to you. So this is a uh, this is a, a a part of what is our children's book announcements issue, which is uh, this week and uh, accessible online, and uh, which is actually I, I think been one of our biggest issues in recent years. And um, this is you've got a uh, looks like a, a four page spread of um, bookstores, and tell us about it. Tell us about these uh, specialty stores. Well, you know, the funny thing, Mark, is about nine years ago, I did a story for PW about whether or not children's bookstores could survive. At the time, um, chain stores were proliferating, and many of them had children's departments that were bigger than most children's specialty stores. Mm -hmm. They might have 5,000 square feet devoted just to kids' books, but... Times have changed quite a bit, and um, Borders, of course, is no longer with us. And big, big, big stores are no longer the thing, and print is also back. Uh, parents really care about sharing a print book with their children. And, and so uh, people interested in becoming booksellers have, and people who have been booksellers and wanted to open their own stores have taken that all and thought, let's open a children's bookstore. Mm. And what we were seeing at uh, at the children's desk at PW is that a lot of bookstores were opening, and we we thought, this is kind of interesting. I, uh, this isn't one of the stores we profiled because it's not open yet, mm-hmm. but even uh, a playwright who's had some success with a with a children's book is looking to open at least a pop-up children's bookstore in the Bronx to serve um, kids there who are very much underserved by uh, bookstores. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then there's just all kinds of cool bookstores opening up. Uh, two people in St. Paul, Minnesota, who just love reading YA, decided, let's open a YA bookstore. They've since added uh, books for younger kids, too, but addendum books, mm-hmm. very tiny, but just a really fine little bookstore. Um, and many of these bookstores are tiny. Addendum is one of the smallest. It's only 400 square feet. Right. Um, but uh, many of them are actually less than 1,000 square feet. Um, one, one unusual one is a bookseller who just really loves kids' books and felt constrained by the bookstore she worked in, that there just wasn't enough space for kids' books. And um, she went to the owners and talked to them about, what if we opened a separate kids' store? And Mm. so they did. So sort of across a parking lot behind the bookstore, uh, Carmichael's books, they opened uh, Carmichael's Kids in Louisville, Kentucky, mm. and it's been extremely successful. Now they have 800 square feet to put, to showcase all their kids' books. Which is pretty sizable for just a children's bookstore, it seems. I think it is. It, it really is nowadays. Um, I know those superstores, if you go back to the my example from 2007, were quite large and were 25,000 square feet and even larger. Um, But most bookstores now, many bookstores now, especially independent stores, might be 
20, 2,000 square feet total, 1,500 square feet. So, yes, having 800 square feet for children's books is, is uh, really nice. And that store is kind of fun. Um, uh, Kelly Estep, who's the manager for Carmichael's and does the buying and helped open Carmichael's Kids, used to bring her two ch- children to the store before it opened. And I think one day they fell asleep in the window or something, and people <laughs> thought this was really fun to see the kids in the store window. And oh. so now they keep a window where kids can actually sit and read in the window. Oh, that's great. <laughs> it's really fun. Kids actually love to do it. They love to be seen, and they love to read. So <laughs> two good things at once. Well, it seems to, you know, if you were to have an offshoot of any bookstore, it seems to make sense that um, one would do it with what is probably one of the still strongest, steadily strongest growing or steadily strongest markets, and that's kids' books, both YA and, and picture books. So um, it seems like that's, for, for many, a, a smart move. Um, that's true. And then some of the stores have really opened up because parents wanted to offer their kids a variety of books. So L.A. Libraria, which is maybe the only Spanish-language children's bookstore in mm. the U.S., started because two mothers wanted to have more Spanish-language books for their kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and they began actually by doing uh, book fairs for schools. Mm-hmm. And um, then a few years later, they started selling books online, and then they added the uh, brick-and-mortar store in 2015. So it took three years from doing those book fairs to opening the bookstore. And now they tell me they have 750 square feet. Now they tell me they really want to have a bigger space. Oh, Wow. Yeah, they have an unusual problem that most uh, booksellers don't have is that they import a lot of books. So that's one of their big challenges is getting the books that they want Mm -hmm. and getting them easily. And where are they importing the books from? Uh, They actually get them from all over uh, Latin America. They take some from Spain, but more from Latin America. And and certainly there are some U.S. publishers that, who publish bilingual uh, Spanish-English right. books. Um, so th- those are simpler to to get a hold of. But uh, no, they said that was that was one of their problems. But they're really happy with the way it's going. It's they've been profitable, and um, they even published a book of their own. And they think they might want to publish some more. Well, you in each of these, you you highlight. I, I think it's uh, eight or uh, eight bookstores, and you you have similar questions for each of them. And and one is which which I found interesting was um, challenges. Uh, I, and, and you also have one in sales. You know, questions about that. So, talk about some maybe some of the challenges some of these bookstores have had, and how they might have overcome them. Or just which challenges that they're facing right now? Uh, well, one one bookstore that uh, uh, just opened up in Brooklyn called Stories Bookshop Plus Storytelling Lab, uh, which basically means it's a small bookstore in the front, and in the back there's a room. Uh, there are doors to close it off from the bookstore to keep the noise down. And the idea is to teach kids writing. But the biggest challenge, that store is opened by um, parents of two young children, and one of the owners is a is a uh, an author. And so she had a pretty good idea about writing and really wanted to work with kids on writing. <laughs> writing and reading um, go hand in hand in terms of building children's literacy. Um, but what she found difficult was a different kind of writing, actually writing an application to get a small business association loan, mm. which she did get, but it's not the way you would write a novel. Oh, so right. that was probably one of the more unusual right. challenges. Um, and she's been very happy with how it's going, and one of her sons actually picked some of the books for the stores, and they even have his... Uh, his recommendations. One of his picks has been a store bestseller. 
uh, mischief season. Oh, so right. That's kind of fun. Yeah, really and, fun. And could, were you able to gauge how successful the, the stores have been? I would say, well, a few of the stores we put in, uh, like Stories Bookshop uh, and Storytelling Lab, and one on the other coast, uh, Bell and Bunna's Bookshop, have really only been open for a very brief time. Mm-hmm. But we just wanted to show, by including them, we wanted to show that new booksellers are continuing to come up, um, that this isn't just something that happened four years ago or five years ago and some people decided let's open a children's bookstore, but lots of people are deciding to open a children's bookstore. Um, Bell and Bunna's is a case where um, she also has, uh, I guess, middle school age children, but um, she was in uh, a businesswoman for 25 years and decided she really needed to get out of that, and mm-hmm. she loves the bookstore and has loved all aspects of getting it ready to get going. Most of her challenges were, uh, I think, I think one of her challenges, most of her challenges were the expected kind of of retail because she hadn't been in retail before. But what did surprise her was how many realtors didn't believe that she really wanted to open a children's bookstore or this would be a good business to be in, and she had trouble convincing them to show her spaces. Mm. Oh, wow. Yeah, but uh, she overcame that, and she has a 800-square-foot um, store that uh, she recently opened. And there was a children's bookstore in that community that had closed, and she felt like, they really needed another children's bookshop, and so she she was going to do that. Right. And and she hasn't looked back. It, it hasn't been open for very long, but she's been working on the project for a few years, and she hasn't looked back. She's quite excited about it. Now, have any of these uh, uh, bookstore owners incorporated, say, coffee shops or I don't know if they're the size permits or I see there's one it's called Toys and Books uh, or, or something else to, to if not draw uh, customers in, but to keep them in a little bit? Well, what if the, one of the biggest days in children's book selling week is Saturday because so many kids have Saturday birthday parties to go to. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know about you, Mark, but when my daughter was young, uh, it was often that morning that I was thinking, <laughs> we forgot to pick up something. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the case with so, us every single one, every single birthday. So that's one reason why uh, many of the stores do carry toys. Right. <clears throat> it makes a great, great gift uh, to pick a book and to have a toy um, connected with it that just has a better, bigger presence. Um, it just makes a nice gift. So a lot of people have chosen to do that. For some, it was also a way to make sense of some of the kids' sidelines they wanted to carry. They wanted to carry educational toys, but they might not have had space in their other right. store. Ollie's Other Place is one of those stores that has gifts and games and toys as well as books, and uh, that's what happened for them. They have a store in, in Middlebury, Vermont, and uh, they are now able to carry those educational toys they always wanted to have that they thought parents would want along with books, and mm-hmm. it's it's not that old yet. It won't won't have had its first year until November, but so far they're pretty happy with it, and they think they're they're making some new connections that way. Sometimes. Wow, great. Well, Judith, thank you so much. Uh, this is uh, this is a pretty uh, you know it's a great piece in a great issue, and listeners can find it on our website. Um, Judith, thank you so much. Thank you, Mark. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Yaa Jesse, the author of Homegoing, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. 
And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. And you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for an interview with Bill Strever, author of And Soon I Heard a Roaring Wind. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 